The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. The associate pastors are doing a series within a series this week and the next two weeks on the Spirit and the law of God in line with Dr. Rogers' series on the Ten Commandments. Looking this morning at Galatians, chapter 5, beginning at verse 16 and reading through the end of chapter 5, let us hear God's word. But I say, walk By the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This passage, if you note, has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. It's repeated a number of times. Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit or to keep in step with the Spirit, especially in regard to the law of God that we've been hearing preached and the conflict with the flesh that we read about here? This is the theme that we're going to be considering during this brief three-part series. We thought it would be helpful to study the work of the Spirit in light of the series on the law of God. Walking in the Spirit is not something mystical or mysterious uh, in the sense of being reserved for only the super-spiritual of Christians. It does not involve somehow discerning special signs from God No, it is every believer's obligation and privilege because the Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, we will see the Christian faces conflict. The Christian faces spiritual warfare. There is conflict with the flesh or indwelling sin. But essentially, believers 
have been born again by the Spirit. They have received the Spirit, and they fundamentally live in the Spirit. On June 29, 1913, the little town of Gettysburg began to fill up with old men. More than 50,000 veterans of the Battle of Gettysburg arrived, began arriving that day from horse-drawn wagons, cars, and trains. They came to mark the 50th anniversary of that great battle. They came from north and south. They camped in the fields of Gettysburg, men mostly in their late 70s and 80s. That would have been interesting to see and experience. But they came because they shared a common experience 50 years beforehand. And it was one of the most remarkable military reunions of any nation or any age in the history of the world. Well, the analogy may fall short, but Christians share together in the life of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. So if we are indwelt by the Spirit, what does it mean then to keep in step with the Spirit, especially regarding obedience to the law of God and conflict, that inner warfare with the flesh? I would like us to see three main points from our text in regards to this, three commands that we find from our text. The first is this, keep in step with the Spirit by standing firm in the gospel. Keep in step with the Spirit by standing firm in the gospel. For this first point, we back up to the beginning of chapter 5, which I didn't read. And there in verse 1, we read this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul is talking about the tendency for Christianity to be twisted into a religion of what we might call works righteousness. Even in the early church, this was happening. And there's nothing new under the sun. It's still very much a part of the religious scene of our day. The idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ, of free grace through Christ and what he has done, is twisted into some idea that you can earn acceptance with God by what you do by your good works in some sense, by religious ceremonies of some kind. It was a constant problem in the early church. Look at verses 2 to 4 where Paul elaborates on this. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Paul is saying that circumcision as a religious ceremony of keeping the law as a way to be saved is of no use. He is being very adamant about this. And he's saying you can't add circumcision to faith in Christ as if, as some in the Galatian church were saying, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ plus obedience to the law in some way represented by circumcision. The point is our salvation is never to be based on keeping the law. In fact, the whole theme of the second half of the book of Galatians is in Jesus Christ, life is liberty. 
Life is freedom in Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we were in bondage. We were under the curse of the law of God because none of us keep the law of God and all its spiritual requirements and inwardness. And that's not because God's law was bad. No, the law of God reflects the very character of God himself. It is beautiful. That's why Jesus Christ came to fully obey the law. And the beauty of Christ is the beauty of his obedience fully to the law of God. But the law showed us our sin. The law shows sin to be exceedingly sinful. And so Christ came to bear the curse of the law, to perfectly keep the law as our substitute, and to bear the wrath of our breaking of the law on the cross. And so to freely bestow a right relationship to God through faith in him. So is there any wonder that Paul says, don't even think about going back into bondage. In Christ, you have freedom. Stand firm then. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, keeping in step with the Spirit involves standing in the gospel. And look at, in fact, what he says in verse 5. As he talks about this, he says, For through the Spirit, notice the mention of the Spirit again, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. He's saying, faith in Christ is a faith that hopes and looks for that final righteousness which we have in Christ, which is going to be declared on the last day when we see Jesus face to face. He he doesn't say, by the Spirit and in faith, we work for righteousness. No, he's saying we wait. We know it is a gift of God. We are declared righteous in Christ, and we have this earnest expectation because we know that we will not stand condemned on that last day. So by the Spirit and through faith, we wait in expectation. That's keeping in step with the Spirit. That's standing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Walking in daily faith in Christ means that we have an expectation a certain hope that we will eventually stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We do that in the power of the Spirit. You see, the Spirit of God is constantly helping believers to stand in Christ alone, to glory in Jesus Christ alone, to know that we are saved once and for all, not by anything we do or ever can do, but by the amazing life and death and resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. And that is true, and that is the gospel. And that's keeping in step with the Spirit. I want us to just pause to see how important this is and how deadly the tendency is to turn Christianity into a man-made religion. This has happened in the history of the church again and again and again, and it empties the gospel of its power, and it actually turns the gospel upside down and inside out. And as Paul begins the book of Galatians, he says, someone has been preaching a gospel to you that is actually not the gospel, but is another gospel. It's not the true gospel anymore if you add anything else to faith in Christ. Any religion, any so-called Christian religion or any religion of the world, teaches, if it doesn't hold the gospel, that essentially people should just try to do their best. And hopefully they will be okay eventually. Religions add ceremonies to faith in Christ. They add religious rituals. They add good works. 
They act acts of outward repentance. They add all these things to the gospel, which are not the gospel at all. And any such religion, Christian or not, so-called Christian or not, has lost sight of the gospel. Essentially, this is Satan's deception to substitute anything for the work of Christ because he knows that the church only flourishes and stands in the gospel itself. And not only is this Satan's deception, but I would say that can't we all relate to the fact that it is the natural thinking of every human being, apart from the word of God, to think, well, I'm okay, and I'm not all that bad. And I hopefully will get into heaven somehow. If I were to go down to Lancaster Center Square this afternoon and take a survey of folks as they pass by, and if they would talk to me, and I would ask them about whether they think they're going to heaven or not and why they are going there. And probably a majority of them would hope that they're going to heaven eventually. Maybe some would say, well, they don't even know if there is one. You can be sure that many of them would respond, well, I hope I've led a good life. I I hope I've been good enough. And I know that, you know, I'm not that good, but um, I'm not that bad. And the problem that reflects is that naturally we don't see how serious sin is. We don't understand how deeply we've broken the holy law of God. And so we really don't see that great a need for a Savior, for Jesus Christ to save us. Most people in the world, if they've heard of Christ, probably have a high regard for him in some way. They might think he's a great man of some kind. But that's like a Grand Canyon difference between esteeming Jesus Christ as the true God and Savior of the world your only hope and refuge. And so keeping in step with the Spirit means continuing to stand firm in the gospel and not being pulled back into bondage. We must not lose our liberty in Christ by losing sight of the gospel. That is the Christian's daily stance. But secondly, keeping in step with the Spirit, we are called to keep in step with the Spirit by waging war Against the flesh. And here we pick up in our text in chapter 5, verse 16. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Christian is to wage war against the flesh. This point emphasizes the danger of really going to the other extreme than verse 1. Verse 1 watch out for the bondage of going back into a works righteousness legalistically keeping the law to try to be saved. But the other extreme is be careful. Don't let your liberty in Christ lead to sinful license or the idea that you are free to just go the way of sin because you've been saved in Christ. Look at verses 13 and 14. We didn't read them, but they precede our text. For you were called to to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's saying the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life is to change us more and more into the likeness of Christ, to actually love the Lord our God with all our heart and love our neighbor as ourself. This is what Christ-likeness is all about. And you think of the law of God You think of how it reflects the character of God, and you think Jesus Christ perfectly reflected the character of God 
And now God is at work in the believer's life to transform us into that likeness. And that, that's a warfare because of indwelling sin. Notice that Paul makes it very clear what this inner conflict is like. In verse 17, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's an opposition. We want to obey the law. Romans 7, we delight in the law in the inner man. But there's like an invisible force field. Every Christian knows what that's like. The flesh is powerful. There's a constant warfare between the Holy Spirit of God and and the sin that still remains in us. If you believed in Jesus Christ, the Spirit has come and he's indwelt you and he's implanted new desires and new longings and a whole new set of attitudes. And what we read about here in verse 22 about the fruit of the Spirit, that's something the Spirit imparts. And by his power, Jesus Christ has overthrown the rule of sin in the Christian's life. He has killed sin at its root. He has weakened its power. But... The nature of sin that remains is unchanged. It is still hostile to God. It's still declaring all-out warfare against God's gracious rule in our lives. There's no ceasefire. There's no peace treaty with sin. You know, as we think about the war, the war on terror worldwide, and we think what it's like for the Boston bombing to take place, and you read about what's been said by these individuals who's carried this out or other terrorists around the world. And they may get caught, but there's really no change in their attitude of hostility to the West. And there's no making tree speedies with them most of the time. It's not like we can negotiate and say, well, we'll change. If, if you do this, we'll do that. Because, no, because there's a deep-seated hostility that they will even deceive with peace treaties and things like that. Because their ultimate goal is to destroy And if a Christian tries to stop the hostilities of this conflict with the flesh by gratifying the flesh, by giving into it in some way, it only makes matters worse. It's like throwing gasoline on a fire. It's not going to put it out. It's going to make it blow up more. And even though sin has no rightful authority in the Christian's life, it still pushes us around. And Paul says, Uh, We don't do what we want to do. The Apostle Paul is is telling us that he is very much aware of this conflict that we all feel. He expects this battle with the flesh. He knows it's part of a believer's life, having evil at our elbow, so to speak. The Spirit gives you a Christ-like desire to love others. But indwelling sin is nipping at your heels with an alternative plan for how to think about yourself foremost. Don't we know how easily self-centered we all are? Even at our very best, even when we're praying, or even when we're sitting here this morning, hearing the word of God, worshiping, singing hymns, even then the flesh distracts us. Even then it cools, it seeks to cool our love for God and his word and focus us on lesser things. That's the warfare that you and I live with daily. 
So don't be surprised by the enemy within. Don't be deceived about the nature of the Christian life as we seek to live in obedience to the will and the law of God out of gratitude for Christ. It's a war. I've read some articles about what it's like to live in Syria right now. Syria is just a war zone. No matter which side you're on, no matter who you hope to win, it's like living in the middle of a war. And you interview, you read these interviews about individuals who have to go out to get bread. And they never know when a sniper's going to attack or when a bomb's going to go off. And it's just a very terrible kind of lifestyle. Well, in, in another sense, that's a reflection of what the Christian lives with. There are hostilities going on every day. We don't live in, in complete peace. There's war with the spirit warring against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And in fact, if you don't feel something of that battle within, if you don't know something about what the apostle's describing here of this constant warfare, if somehow you're at complete peace within, then it's very possible that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ because you are just, you're just giving in to the flesh. You're just living the way the world would have you to live. That's because there's peace, not because sin merely remains, but more likely because sin still reigns in your life. And you may be pretty good in terms of just how we generally view folks in the world, but still, still, you are living ultimately for yourself and not for the Lord. And if that's the case, then you need to be born of the Spirit. You need to be indwelt by the Spirit. You need to trust in Jesus Christ, submit to him as your Lord, and repent of your sin and turn to him, receive the new life he gives, and the life in the Spirit that Christians are given by grace. But Christians are called to keep in step with the Spirit daily by waging warfare against the flesh. And that means that you can expect the flesh to be deceptive. I liked Hardy Boys books when I was a boy. I loved to read about Frank and Joe, these teenage boys who solved crimes. And they would always be investigating things. And, you know, especially they'd always end up in these houses that were very sinister, maybe an abandoned house. And they're looking for someone and they go into the house. And you just know as you read, something's going to happen. Someone's going to jump out from a door or, you know, from a bookcase that slides open somehow, and there's a bad guy back there. You just never know, and there's this sense of suspense because it's scary, but it's fun to read. Uh, Chris Lungard uses the analogy of a haunted house in his book, The Enemy Within, and he says, the human heart is like a haunted house. You never know from what direction the flesh is going to jump out from next, in a sense. The problem is not the world out there. We certainly see that. But the problem is also inside our hearts with this warfare with the flesh. And Jeremiah 17 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is cured only through Jesus Christ and his great salvation. But the sin that within still surprises us. Hebrews 3.13 warns us about being hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Ephesians 4.22 urges us to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That is what it feels like 
to walk in the Spirit, to be battling these deceitful desires. And it's only in light of the, the Word of God as it illuminates our hearts and exposes our sin and the power of the Holy Spirit that we more and more live unto God in obedience to Him. Think about it. Verse 19 of Galatians 5 tells us that the acts of the sinful nature are evident. They're obvious. The works of the flesh are obvious. And then he he gives us a representative list of things like sexual immorality, impurity, jealousy, anger, envy, all these kinds of things. And notice, for all of us, it's much easier to see those sins in everybody else rather than in ourselves. It's because of the deceptive nature of sin. And sin pulls that bait and switch. You know, that's a great sales technique. I don't know if you read the article in the newspaper this week about Allegiant Airlines. It's really cheap airlines that you can fly from Harrisburg to St. Petersburg, Florida. You can get away. And, and they have all these routes that nobody else competes for. And they have really low prices. But the article talked about that, yeah, they have low prices, but they add fees all these deceptive ways. It costs extra to buy a ticket online. It costs extra to have a seat pre-planned. In fact, none of the seats even recline. I don't know what that would be like on an airplane. And they have them all squished together. And they have luggage fees and this fee, and there's no 800 phone number to call. All these fees. And they said, really, when you add it all up, you're paying 33% more when you pay even half the fees. It's the old bait and switch. I'm not saying Allegiant is wrong. I'm just saying that's the way business is done in the world. But the enemy, the flesh, uses the bait and switch technique for Christians as well. The flesh holds out the bait of temptation and hides the hook of the painful consequences of sin. The flesh pushes us around and entices us with all kind of promises of pleasure and wealth and entertainment, and appearance, and prestige, and being accepted by your peers, and security, and comfort, and power over others, or approval by others. All these kind of temptations, whether you're a teenager or whether you're 90 years old, the flesh is still pulling its bait and switch. It's still tempting you in various ways. And before we hardly even know what's happening, the flesh entangles us and trips us up. It affects every part of our soul, our mind, our emotions, our will, even our conscience. Our conscience can be desensitized to sin and hardened to sin. And that's true not only because of the society we live in, but because of the hardness of our heart, which easily cools in its love for the Lord. And when we stop and think about the deceptive power of the flesh, we say with the Apostle Paul, "'O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death?' Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. By his spirit and his word, Jesus exposes the enemy within. And by the power of the spirit, Christians are called to live in the spirit, to keep in step with the spirit, to be done with the works of the flesh, to put on the fruit of the spirit by the power of the spirit. Well, then our third point brings us to that very thing, Keep in step with the Spirit by actively doing God's will, depending on the Spirit's power. Keep in step with the Spirit by actively doing God's will in dependence on the Spirit's power. 
In verse 22, we read about the fruit of the Spirit, a very familiar verse. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, and so on. But think about it this way. The fruit of the Spirit are character traits produced by the Spirit of God, but they're also the very things commanded by God and His will and His Word. The fruit of the Spirit is love, but we're commanded to love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's produced by the Spirit. We're commanded again and again to rejoice. So both those aspects are true. It's a Spirit-imparted grace, but also we cooperate by seeking actively to obey the will of God in the power of the Spirit. We can't be passive in our sanctification. We can't just sit back and say, well, God's going to do it, and I don't have to work in any way. We're to be striving to follow the whole moral law of God in the power of the Spirit. That's how Scripture portrays how sanctification takes place. For example, think about it. Dr. Rogers has preached on the first five commandments. We've heard about the first four, which regard God, and we heard the the fifth about honoring parents. And as we've heard them preached, Dr. Rogers has brought out the spiritual intention of those those laws, how, how deeply they go, like the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about anger being really murder. We're going to see more about that when Dr. Rogers returns. But Christians are called to seek to obey the commandments, not out of this works righteousness as a way to be saved, not in a way that's separated from the power of the Holy Spirit, but obedience in a gospel-based, Christ-glorifying, Spirit-empowered manner. That is pleasing to God. That's what keeping in step with the Spirit means. No wonder in verse 23 at the end, when Paul has talked about the fruit of the Spirit, he says, against such things there is no law. What does that mean? The Christian's not under the law? We don't have to worry about it? We can just do what we want? No. It's not saying that. It's not saying that Christians are free just to break God's moral will. No, rather, Paul is saying the function of the law in one part is to restrain sin, to deter sin, to curb sin. But because Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is producing the fruit of the Spirit, this Christ-like fruit in our lives, there is a sense in which someone like that doesn't need the law. There is no law. There is no need for deterrence when you're joyfully walking in the law out of gladness in Christ. You know, the speed limit out on Oregon Pike, I think it says 35 miles per hour. I'm not sure. But, you know, that's, that's a deterrent, right? If you drive down the road, you probably will obey that, especially if there's a police car behind you. You probably look at your speedometer. Okay, what's the speed limit? That's a deterrence. Parents know that children obey because there are certain consequences that come. But if a child is a child who delights to obey you, you don't have to be reiterating the law over and over again. Paul is saying life in the Spirit in a sense, doesn't even need the deterrent power of the law because now the mind of the Spirit is at work in Christians' lives. We walk in gladness in the law of God. And then verse 24 talks about this radical break with sin, 
when we come to know Christ and how to live it out. It says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does he mean they have crucified the flesh? Isn't the flesh still alive? Well, the flesh has been crucified. He's speaking about conversion, which brings about a fatal wound to the flesh. Jesus Christ deals a death blow to the flesh. It's on the cross now. For the rest of the Christian's life, the flesh has been decisively defeated. It's still struggling in a sense. We may be tempted to pull the nails out at times, but the flesh has been crucified because we've renounced the way of sin. We've turned to Christ. We've accepted him as our Savior and Lord. We've turned from the way of sin. Yes, we still fail and sin in many ways, but there's been this decisive renunciation. Even though there's a sense in which the flesh feels very much alive still. But in Christ, it's been nailed to the cross, and it's in the process of ultimately dying. And so verse 25 brings the exhortation again. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Christians live in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Continue to repent of your sin. Continue to seek to do the will of God and look to the Spirit's empowering in your life. I would like us to conclude with four brief words about how to do that, even this week. One, day by day, moment by moment, turn away from the desires and the actions of the flesh and turn toward the Spirit. I want to emphasize that this is a daily calling for Christians. There are going to be ways that each of you are tempted this week, tempted with the mindset of the world that's squeezing you into its mold, tempted by your own flesh, which rises up within you. It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, keeping in step with the Spirit. No wonder, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit within you, keep in step with the Spirit. Don't give up. Keep repenting of your sin. It's like daily exercise. You know, when the astronauts return from being in, on the space station for, for six months, you know, they can hardly walk. Their muscles are so atrophied and weak from being in space for six months, and they have to take these little steps. But it's a daily thing of getting their muscles back in tone. So it is with every believer. We have to be doing this daily. Secondly, remember that you belong to Jesus Christ and that you stand every day in his grace alone. Don't we all like that hymn, in Christ alone? We stand in his grace alone. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh. We belong to Christ. Against such there is no law. All these are speaking of that gracious relationship we have because Jesus Christ has called us and saved us by his blood. And what a great difference there is between obeying the law out of a law mentality or trying to do something to just earn acceptance with God or to obey law out of a legalism of external compliance, rather than obeying with delight because of God's grace to you in Christ. How we want to be more like Jesus Christ, who delighted to do the Father's will, and we all are being made like him. Remember you belong to Jesus Christ. Thirdly, when confronted with temptation, set your mind on the wickedness of sin its ultimate end. Notice 
that when Paul talks about the works of the flesh, he concludes and says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ultimately, the works of the flesh, if we continue in that mindset, in that direction, they ultimately lead to spiritual death. Now, he's not saying that a true Christian can lose his or her salvation, but he is saying, Christians, you need to keep in mind the ultimate end of your sin, the exceeding wickedness of sin. So when confronted by temptation, we need to be like Joseph, who when Potiphar's wife tempted him to sexual sin, he fled, he left his coat, he fled. And later on he said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? That's the mindset every Christian has to have, to keep the cross of Jesus Christ in view. The cross shows us how sinful sin is, how wicked it is, and deeply how the cost of Christ required him to lay down his life for that. And finally, number four, depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. It's really what walking in the Spirit is all about, depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the quote by G.K. Chesterton. I think I've used it before, and that is that the flesh, the enemy within, is like a rhinoceros in a restaurant. He has great power, but no rightful authority. That's the flesh. You think of that funny analogy of a rhinoceros in a restaurant, and yeah, the owner doesn't want him there, I'm sure. No rightful authority, but great power. That's how it is with the flesh. And using the law in and of itself to stop the flesh is like slapping that rhinoceros on the rear hide with the blade of grass and saying, stop it. The law does not have any power to enable us to keep the law. It's only the power of Jesus Christ in the Spirit that we can slay the flesh. And so Christians must live in the Spirit, must keep in step with the Spirit. Friends, we live in a hostile war zone. And we even have a hostile force within our own souls, the flesh warring against the Spirit. Expect the enemy within. And let the Word of God expose the flesh's deceitful ways and more and more overcome the temptations of the flesh by keeping in step with the Spirit. Amen. Father, we do look to you as our only hope and strength. We thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we are no longer under the law and in bondage to its curse because we know we can never keep the law. And we have all failed in every point of the law in some way. But thank you for the great and free salvation offered in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the freedom in which we have been set free now to live unto you. Grant us each grace this week to so live by the power of your spirit. Amen.